So I've listened to The Fire Next Time like multiple times. I, yes, I'm in love with Audible now. That's a whole nother story. We'll talk about that. I know that I've said that I'm like not an Audible person, but I am now. That's another story I will tell you about later. But I've listened to it like a number of times and it's easy to listen to because it's only two hours. I mean, and it's, it's a gem. It's a gem. Um, The Fire Next Time was written by James Baldwin in 1963 was when it was released. And it's basically like two essays. One is about him writing a letter to his nephew, um, who was named after him, talking about race in America. And then the second one is about his relationship to uh, race and religion. So like his experiences with Um, the two topics, uh, primarily focusing on Christianity and um, Islamic ideas and talking more so in Harlem, because that's where he grew up. So this isn't going to be me like completely talking about, this isn't going to be me talking about the book, but more so the ideas that came to my mind in listening to it. And For me, like one of the overarching themes that becomes that I think is clear throughout the whole entire thing, but like really becomes clear at the end. Or I guess maybe not that it becomes clear at the end, but I really like this and this is something that stands out to me. And it's more so when he gets into his second essay where he's talking about like his own experiences with race and religion and talking about how the relationship between black and white people and what they go to each other for. And I think when he says um, the white man is looking for love, I think that's something that's very interesting. And I think it's also very profound because it kind of like makes me think about because what he says that black people go to the white man for is like uh for he's like, Oh, it's something like $5. And then um, something else, I can't think of it right now. Um, And I know you're thinking how many times have you listened to this and you can't remember but you know, hey, Um, it kind of makes me think of like a sugar daddy kind of relationship where you know, you're constantly buying this person. You know, also, he talks about the stealing that happened and how like white folks didn't care about it because of the white guilt that they felt. And I think that it's just like an interesting a reciprocal relationship that he puts in a very clear way. And then you wonder why that relationship continues and that fight and that struggle constantly continues. Um, I liked in the first part the whole, the danger in believing what is said about you. And also, I think nowadays, like what is seen on TV, like the danger in internalizing societal racism, I guess is the only way to say it. The danger that I think also happens um, in parenting that leads children to nowhere. And then you wonder why the cycle is repeating itself and why we have this generational trauma in the black community. And I think that comes from older generations internalizing it and then passing it on to the new generation. But I do think it's 
also important to point out that that generational trauma does tie back into slavery, especially when he talks about the changes that happen between men and women. And it's very easy to see when you look at uh, Willie Lynch's The Makings of a Slave and talking about why, you know, he points out uh, black women becoming like independent and basically being fearful for black men. And all of that ties into uh, the makings of a slave. It's like, you know, you saw all this horrible stuff happening to the men who were supposed to protect you and stuff like that. And then now black women have to come in and be the protectors and try and shield black men. Which, I mean, some people might say that that might be some form of like emasculation and might also contribute to why um, black love and like black marriages have kind of like disintegrated or why there's this lack of um, love between black men and women. Um, there's definitely, um, something there, but I'm not going to go that, I'm not going to go deeply into it because, you know, I can go off on my little tangents. Um, I also think the, that the preaching of like acceptance is really interesting because in it, he's like asking, he's saying that there's a need for white people to accept the reality of who they are. But there's also, at the same time, I kind of don't like, don't like it because it it's kind of implies that we have to accept them as they are and somehow teach them and lead them into the reality that we see, while also saying that our realities are tied together, that we will, we can't be free and they can't be free unless we are both free and we both see each other's plight and recognize where we are which I kind of think is unfair because when you think about it black people are always they're born with a double consciousness they have to have this double consciousness whereas white people don't so I don't know I think that that's unfair um and perhaps maybe it's less true today than it was like many years ago Maybe. I don't I don't want to. That's like, you know, speculation. I mean, that's something that's hard to gauge. But I just think that it's unfair to kind of put that burden. I don't like the idea of that the burden is always on black people to somehow teach to somehow always be forgiving and always be like helpful. But that's just me. Um, I also think it's interesting the fact that he points out that the white identity is somehow attached to racism and white people don't realize that it's attached to racism. Like it's something that is inherent in just their identity and to let go of it um, is just like, who am I without this power? And that is a comment that, you know, reminds me of Mississippi burning when it's like, uh, when the guy's like talking about his dad being a farmer, and the black farmer being a better farmer than his dad. And then one day, you know, they're driving past and the black farmer's gone and the house is empty. And the dad, and he's looking at his dad and his, 
and his dad knows that he knows that his son knows what he did. And he says, basically, if you're not better than a nigger, then who are you better than? And that is like what I think comes out in this whole attachment. Because it's also like when you look at people who look at white people who are lower class, it's something that you see is something that's a part of their identity. Um, and it's something for them to like hold on to, to be like, well, I might not have a million dollars or I might not be rich, but I'm doing better than this black person who might have just the same amount of money as me, but I'm still white. You know what I mean? So I think it's more intrinsic, I think, for poor white people than it is for rich white people in terms of like defining their identity. Because I think at the core of America, it's all about money and then it's about race. As much as I dislike that, I just think that that's probably that that is the reality that we're living in. There's no probably about it. And then moving on from there, this idea that America as a whole has to be honest about who they are, I think is really interesting. Like, not to say that I think that America's not honest, but I think the acceptance isn't really there. And there is this this cleaning up that does happen. So there's like, you know, a pretty way of saying things or a way to say them in this very short way. Because I mean, really, until you get to college, you don't really have the time necessarily to dive completely into all of American history in a very in-depth way. And you think about something like slavery is only maybe when you're in school, like you're taught it every year, but you're only getting like, you know, might be a week or two weeks of you talking about it. And it's very short. And I mean, we're talking about something that went on, not for like decades, and stuff like that. It's not like, oh, it's like five decades. It's great. You know, you're talking about, you know, like, this is 100 years, 200 years that you're condensing into such a short period of time. So I think it's also hard in our in our education system and also when everybody has their own reality of what our history is and it's like they say the south won the narrative you know what i mean they may have lost the war but they won the narrative one and at the end of the day like that's what matters um the stories are what matters. And like that whole idea of like history being written by the winners and that one case of our civil war. I mean, history wasn't written by the winners. Or I would guess maybe that it wasn't. It was written by the winners, but done in a, such a way where the losers didn't feel like losers. But who knows? I also the he talks about the whole like black men trying to like find work and trying to find success and stuff like that, but also talks about how the money doesn't matter because race is so prevalent. So like you can have money as a black man, but that your race then trumps that. But it reminds me that um, kind of of. Oh, Michael Eric Dyson's book, uh, Jay-Z's, it's called Jay-Z something. And it basically, he's talking about how America was 
built by gangsters. And now those gangsters have been criminalized being a gangster over history, but that's the way that like um, power was gained and money was gained. And something that I think is interesting is money versus political power. I think he talks about this and it's like we've, and I think today, like in today's time, we're like, it's always this talk about chasing the bag, chasing the bag, chasing the bag. But in chasing the bag, you think that that's going to come with power. But in some respects, for black people, political power is more important than money in some respects, I think. And in terms of furthering the culture and stuff like that, I th- I think it's more important, especially when you think about the fact that there are uh, thousands and thousands of theories on something like criminal, just, uh, criminal justice reform and, and stuff like that. That is something that's very important to the black community. But the theories are not what drive policy. And so having people who understand the system and have been affected by the system making those laws and making those changes, I think is important. Um, I'm always like skeptical about the whole white guilt thing. I don't like it. I understand that it's a reality. Um, I just don't like it. I don't like that there's this, not that I'm saying that white people shouldn't feel guilty or... I, or whatever, but I just think I just don't like the term for it. But and and I wonder where that guilt stems from. Is it from like I just don't think that guilt comes from the right place, I guess. It it's like when he was taught when I said earlier he was talking about how slaves or I mean um not slaves, but the workers who worked inside of these homes would steal from the people that they worked for. And and he even said, like, the the black people didn't even feel bad about it. And the white people just never said anything because they had this internalized guilt. I just think that the guilt doesn't come from the right place. And that bothers me. And then the black church. Um, I thought it was interesting that his the thing that drove him. I think it reminds me of kind of like violence in the inner city. And he he kind of alludes to it, but doesn't necessarily make it direct where he like saw all these different avenues, but he chose to go into the black church. And then he realized that it was like, basically this money hungry business. Ooh, one more thing about the white guilt thing. I just want to say that I think sometimes... Nope, never mind. We're just going to stick to where I'm where I'm going now. I'm not even going to go backwards. Um, so the black church and then, you know, like it's money hungry. It's a business. And I also thought that relationship between his father and him and that need to like show him up, I thought was interesting. And also the use of drugs, I thought was interesting because it's something that still exists within the black community today. And it's basically used as a numbing agent, I guess, from the reality. But he talks about like that anger, that upsetness. And it's like, where does all that go? And how do I keep it under control? 
so and then that part where he talks about like going to a psychologist and i mean even now there is in the black community this fear or this taboo of going to psychologists um also the idea of like acting on what we know and knowing what we know being two different things because I think everybody understands the reality, like we talked about earlier in this. Everybody understands the reality of the American past, but acting on the knowledge they have is a different thing. And it's hard to ask people to change when things have been this way for so long. And also, I think that sometimes we don't take the time to acknowledge the progress that we have made, not to say that we will ever be perfect, but we have made progress. And also, I think it's also dangerous sometimes to always focus on it being like always going so far back. You know what I mean? I think we have to tackle the issues as they come. And yes, those issues constantly are re-manifesting themselves, but we have to deal with them in the form that they are. So it's just like with a virus. Perfect for right now when we're in the midst of this COVID-19 so this, so you have a virus, and let's say slavery is that virus, and then that virus then becomes uh, segregation, you know, and then, and so you have these overt forms of racism that then become covert, covert forms of racism, and so you have, you know, then it becomes like redlining and all this different stuff to keep people in their place. And so I think you have these remanifestations. It's just like mass incarceration is the new Jim Crow uh, by Michelle Alexander. So you have these things and it mutates. So then you then have to address those issues. But I think it's also hard sometimes because they stem from these other issues not to also connect the two and focus on them as it's this lingering over, but focusing on that lingering over isn't going to solve the problem of today, even though it relates to um, previous problems. I also like that he said that people aren't necessarily wicked. It's just that they're spineless. I think that that cuts so deep and it hurts when you when you hear those words and you read those words. It's not that people are like evil or they're out to do something malicious. It's just the fact that they're weak. You know what I mean? They're not like people are not intentionally wicked. And if the world could work without them having to make a stance, without them having to risk life and limb, they would do it. And I think that's also why you see people today like, you know, we have this egalitarian leadership in this younger generation of black people. And you have it because no one is really out there trying to die, or they haven't found their cause that they're willing to die for. Numb from the trauma that their ancestors have felt and that has been passed down to them by the people who basically taught them how to live their lives. And I think also that this is like, I'm going to go backwards, but I think that also has to do with breeding farms during slavery and stuff like that. You obviously, um, 
don't want to keep people who are resistant. And then when you see people being resistant and all they do is get killed, it doesn't necessarily make you want to be on the front lines. But the whole point is then you are spineless. Like, I just love that. And I think that that's something that really applies today when people want to be like social media warriors and stuff like that. It's just like, no, like you have to be out there on the front lines. You need to be willing to put your face on it. You need to be willing to really put yourself out there basically in a very like uncomfortable and direct way um moving forward from there I also thought it was cool when he talked about the whole like victim like the idea that liberals nowadays even though they are trying to, even now, then and now, I think that this um, definitely transcends from the time that this book was written, is that they still don't, even though they're pro all, all these different rights now, because now even liberals are supporting not only black people, they're suppo- supporting women, they're supporting the LGBTQ community, they still haven't yet brought brought or at least look we're looking at the whole of liberals haven't brought them out of their victim status and brought them into like a human one but in this he specifically is talking about black people and talking about how liberals don't see them as men they see them as victims still and i think the 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 power of race is still real um, he talks about in a very, and in, in, in that time, I think it was still very real. And in this time, I kind of take that back. I, I think race is still real in the sense that it's something that has an effect. I don't think it's a, it's, it's effect is as strong as it was when he wrote this. Um, but I think that's also something that could easily be uh, debated because I think that's depending on where you are and your own personal experiences and stuff like that. Because he talked about in this how even when he was 14 and younger, he had already had experiences with the police and most of them were unnecessary and uh, didn't actually lead to anything. So... Um, I still think that that part is true, but I think it's more so experience based and like where you grew up. It's very geographical. I think now whether or not the whether race plays an actual has a potent power in your life or a potent effect on your life is I think is a better way to say it. I also loved the fact that he said what you do to others you do to yourself and I think that just stems from him talking about that's that connection that you can't be free unless the uh, unless the white man realizes who he is. Like our freedom is connected, even though like we quote unquote are liberated, like black people are liberated. Our liberation doesn't come until they see the reality of who they are. Um, so I like that. So I think that also, too, could be connected to white guilt. It could be connected to also why there is this fear of confrontation between the two. 
and stuff like that. So from there, he goes on to talk about the difference between uh, independence then and integration now and talks about them as like there are these false their false narratives or false premises per perpetuated by white America. For him, he's talking about the liberation of like Africa and the integration of schools in the United States during that time. So these are false promises because Europe is still uh, ingrained in Africa. He also talks about how America, Amer African Americans are, you know, American. And that the land that they're living on, like America is theirs too, when he's talking to when he's writing uh, the essay to his nephew, he's saying like, this is your land too. So you know, like you have a stake in this, which I think is really interesting when you think about uh, during that time period when you have, you know, like, um, different types of movements. And also you're coming out of a time where you have like this back to Africa kind of uh, movement from the past as well. And equality and superiority, he talks about them in what I thought was a very interesting way. It's like we live in a nation that talks about equality, but what matters is superiority. And I, I think that that part is still true today because we because it's something that's just, you know, it's one of those things that is just a, a throw over from racism. So it's like, oh, you like we're all supposed to be equal, but superiority finds its way into places. And that's not even to say that superiority itself is a negative. I don't think that someone being superior to you is negative, but I would consider it more so a, a respect thing. So if I go into a job and I've never worked there, obviously um, someone, the person who's training me, and if me and that person have a good rapport, I'm they, they are kind of over me, but it's more so I respect them. It's not necessarily they're superior to me. So I don't necessarily like that language, but for today's time, but I do think that for that the reality of that is still there or the dico the dichotomy between equality and superiority then to now still exists. I um the one question that came to my mind through this uh, was how does fear of death drive us? Like, what is the impact of knowing that you're going to die? Like, we all know we're going to die someday and stuff like that. And I think as you get older, it becomes, you know, more of a reality. And during this time, I mean, it was very prevalent. It was very in your face because there was this even when he talks about like they don't know, who, they didn't know who the enemy was. They just knew that it was the man and the man was white. We all know, and I think that that was more of like a prevalent in your face death, but we all know, potential death, I should say, we all know that to, that we're all going to die at some point. And I just wonder 
what kind of effect that has on the choices that we make. Um, like for him, I think he even mentions that it, it, he didn't even realize how deliberate the choices he was making, like going into the church and stuff like that. He didn't realize how deliberate that choice was until he was older. Like he felt like, oh, you know, like basically I'm, I'm blind out here. I'm trying to like just find my way. But it was became a blatant decision. And I just wonder that f it, how fear plays into the choices that we make and the decisions we make in our own lives. The illusion that he talks about with the whole the whole idea of the mirror and the loneliness of power um, for white people, I think is just weird. I liked the whole concept of the mirror, but the whole idea of like this loneliness and power of like being on this tower and just being lonely. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I understand the concept, but I don't necessarily um, from my own point of reference uh, can fully get with it, you know? And, and like I said, I've listened to this like a multiple times and every time I'm, you know, like I come out of it different because, you know, I'm a different person every time that I listen to it. Love the whole idea, once again, of your liberation is mine. And the end part where he talks about pride and p basically the idea of like putting your pride in your pocket and that is what... um older generations did so they didn't always want to say what they had to say to white people but they did it in order for the next generation to thrive and for you know the things that needed to get done for those things to get done even if they didn't agree with it they put their pride to the side to make moves to move us forward. I thought that was just beautiful. And I think that was like a really good note outside of um, your liberation being my liberation and a good way to end it and to realize that like, we all have, you know, our own issues and sometimes and some at some point somebody's got to be willing to put their stuff down I disagree I think to me because throughout the whole entire thing to me he's saying that black people need to then put their pride aside to then lead this white person into the reality of uh America and I don't and that might just be like me reading it from a today's standpoint and stuff like that and that might not be what everybody gets from it but that's something that I think for like right now like that shines through to me and I don't necessarily know if I agree with it I think that it's it's that whole that idea to me is a bit dated Ooh, this is the last thing um and then I will be wrapping it up but the race is a political reality that he says I think that was just bow. That was another like heavy hitter to me. Um, so it's just like, you know, like today they'll teach you in school race is a social construct. It's like, it's not even real, but race is real. It's a political reality. Like you, I can say that race is a social construct, but the reality and what it does in my life every day and stuff like that, that part is real. 
So it's as real as society wants it to be. So it is a social construct, but everything that's a social construct is is as real as reality makes it and as real as we want it to be. I love this. I totally recommend it. Um, It's just beautiful. And like I said, I keep revisiting it because I keep seeing it in these new ways. Um, And I think it's still some, it's one of those books that, you know, it's a classic. And I think no matter how many times I read it, it's always going to be something that is uh, transformative to me. Um, I really love that first essay where he's writing to his nephew, like talking about the reality of what it means to be a black man and the generations that came before him and about how the world that his nephew was facing is not far removed from the world that his father faced and that he faced and all us and that he's going to face. I thought that was really beautiful. And his metaphors uh, are amazing. Uh, Just a phenomenal writer, his use of diction, you know, he has a very, it's very poetic. Um, And in some ways, that's what makes it kind of unclear at points and allows you to come to your own conclusion. So gotta love the man James Baldwin. I hope you are enjoying your day. And this is Calypso signing off.